This morning we're going to continue through Matthew chapter 12, and uh, uh, today we're going to wrap up the section on the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to give us some clear teaching and understanding on this mostly misunderstood section of Scripture. And uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 12, and I just want to start off by reading the two verses that we're going to be looking at today. We've been looking at this text for a couple of weeks now, but uh, I want to read for you today verses 31 and 32. It says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. One thing that is clearly, uh, as we've been working our way through this text, the one true uh, truth that we've been pulling out is that we serve a God who is a forgiving God. That's throughout the Scripture. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you're at in life. God is there, ready, willing, able to forgive you. Psalm 86.5, we looked at that. You, Lord, are good and ready eager to forgive. Psalm 103.3 says that he forgives all your iniquities. And that's kind of the basics of the gospel message. If God wasn't a forgiving God, there would be no gospel. There would be no good news. But that forgiving God has certain conditions. Uh, There's no forgiveness at any time without the meeting of these conditions that God has set up. And that condition is simply the repentance and confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, a turning away from your sin to God. Uh, That's clearly taught in the New Testament. And the reason the Pharisees could not be forgiven is they could not get beyond their own self-righteousness to a point where they realized that, you know what, we need to be forgiven, we need to repent. And so we return this morning to Matthew 12, and those two verses are what we kind of want to zero in on this morning. If you missed a couple Sundays, go on the internet or get, ask for a CD, and they can, you can catch up that way. Go listen to the podcast. But a couple things we have to understand before we understand what the unpardonable sin is or is not. Uh, in the New Testament, we see throughout a teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that teaching is very basic. It's very uh, elementary to understanding who Christ was and how he worked and ministered while he was here on earth. And one of the first principles that we have to understand if we're going to get anything out of this text that we're looking at this morning is the, the New Testament has a very clear teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ, while he was here on earth, lived in total submission, total submission to God the Father. You have to understand that before we go any further. That while he was here on earth, he wasn't out here doing his own thing. The Bible says, and it says over and over and over again, he said it himself, I have come to do my Father's will. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. He says, I haven't come to do my will, but I've come to do the will of him who sent me. And so, from the very first second that Christ came out of the womb... Until the time that he hung and died on the cross, he was under the submission of the Father's will. He wasn't doing his own thing. And from the first time we meet Jesus Christ, even as a boy, you can look at this in the Gospels, at the age of 12. He makes that very clear. 
that the reason that he came here was that he must be about his father's business. Remember, he was left behind and the parents got kind of upset. They went back and they found him where? In the synagogue. And they kind of read him the riot act. You know, hey, where are you at? Whatever he said, don't you know I got to be about my father's business? He wasn't being rude. He was just stating a fact. In other words, Jesus Christ came into the world to do exactly what God the Father told him to do. No more, no less. And that's a, a key element to understanding the incarnation of Christ, understanding his humiliation, understanding um, his servant's heart. Turn over with me to Philippians chapter 2. I just want you to see this scripture because I think it's kind of important that we see this. Philippians chapter 2. Paul's writing to the church here at Philippi. And he is speaking of Christ uh, and his humility. And he says in verse 6, well, beginning in verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then verse 6 is kind of what I want to zero in on. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of what? What's it say? A servant, a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. Look at what it says he did. He humbled himself and became obedient To the Father, you could put in there, to the point of death, even death on the cross. So when Jesus Christ was here, he didn't do his own thing. He was in servitude. He was under the sovereign will of God the Father. Paul tells us that in this great passage that Jesus Christ, he was equal with God. He was God. And yet, while he was here... Even though he was in every sense God himself, when he came to earth, he took it upon himself, it says, the form of a servant. In other words, he humbled himself. It says that he became obedient. He took on the role of a servant. He set aside his own agenda. He set aside his own prerogatives, the prerogatives of his deity. Are you saying he wasn't God? Oh, he was God. But he set some of those prerogatives of his deity aside. He set his own choices Aside, And he allowed the Father's will to be expressed through him. And that's pretty much clearly taught throughout the New Testament. But what you may not understand, or may not understand it as clearly, even though he was under the submissive will of the Father, it doesn't end there. He was also totally dependent on the power of the Spirit. He was totally dependent on the power of the Spirit. He was totally submitted to the working of the Holy Spirit in his life. In other words, he just didn't go around throwing his power around. I'll heal this guy. I'll do this. I'll do that. That's not what he did. Throughout Scripture, we see that he was constantly directed and empowered and led by the Spirit of God. So he was not only under the submissive will of the Father, but he was also Christ the human being who was here on earth, was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Somehow, mysteriously, we don't understand this, I don't understand this, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, set aside his own prerogatives, his own dealings, his own choices, and he submitted himself to the will of the Father and to the power of the Spirit. Are you saying he 
when he was here on earth, he didn't do anything of his own accord? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Everything he did was either the Father's will or it was empowered by the Spirit. Both. Because they wouldn't be in contrast. He was submitted to the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit. You have to get that if we go any, before we go any further. Even back in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, we see this at his baptism. We, when we went through this, we saw this. Verse 16 says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, which means he must have went down into the water. Therefore, he must have been immersed. That's what the word baptized means. And behold, it says, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It doesn't say a dove. We always see these pictures of a little dove coming down. It, it just, it's just an illustration. Like a dove and aligning upon him. And then suddenly a voice came out of heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. See, there we see the Spirit of God descending upon Christ at the initiation of his ministry. This is when his ministry began. Now, you're asking, did he have the Spirit before that? Sure he did. He definitely did. The Bible says that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Remember when we were talking about John the Baptist and it said that even in the mother's womb, he was filled with the Spirit? Well, if John the Baptist, who was a human being, was filled with the Spirit from the mother's womb, I don't know how that works theologically, but that's what the Bible says. Trust me, so was Jesus Christ, who was God in human form. So we believe that he was conceived of the Spirit of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, as in fact he was the very God in human form, the Bible says. So we're not saying that he didn't possess the Spirit up until his baptism. He had the Spirit of God the whole time. But somehow at his baptism, there was some unique empowering of the Spirit for ministry. And that begins at his baptism. Over in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, a little bit after his baptism, Mark chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, that he was driven into the wilderness by who? By the Holy Spirit. He was driven into the wilderness. Jesus Christ was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. So for the first time since his baptism, the Holy Spirit begins to energize what Jesus Christ says and what he does and even where he goes. A little further on, after his baptism, Luke tells us in Luke 4.14 that Jesus returned in the power of, guess who? The Spirit onto Galilee. So from the time of his baptism, the Spirit takes over the power and he, it moves him out of the baptism, into the wilderness, through the temptation, back into Galilee. And he's under the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not doing this under his own power. He's empowered by the Spirit of God. And then we see what happens. It says, news about him spread throughout the whole countryside, and he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Do you ever wonder why nobody praised him before? I mean, he's up 30 years of age at this point. Nobody else was ever drawn to his teaching before. Nobody else surrounded him before. He was just a simple carpenter's son, probably worked in the shop with his dad. Until he was empowered by the Spirit of God. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God probably changed the way his personage was, the way people looked at him, and the Spirit of God provided a certain magnetic 
power, you might say, that just drew people by the hordes to him. And he was energized by the Holy Spirit. It also says that the Spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, in that verse we see that his preaching, his healing, everything he did, his delivering demons, people from demons, all that stuff, all of that came about because the Spirit of God was upon him. You have to mark that in your mind. That's the only reason those things happen. He wasn't out there doing this on his own. He had and was empowered by the Spirit of God. And so when Christ came into the world in his humiliation, he set aside his own prerogatives. He set aside his own, even, uh, his, his, his own uh, uh, abilities, you might say. And he was totally submitted to the will of the Father and totally committed to being a vessel through which the Holy Spirit would work. And so that's what the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit energized him. The Holy Spirit did what he needed to do through him for ministry, from the baptism all the way through the temptation and even out of the temptation into his teaching, into his healing, into his preaching ministry. Everything he did was empowered by the Spirit of God. And when you looked at Jesus Christ and you evaluated him, in fact, you were evaluating not just some man, you were evaluating the will of God and the power of the Spirit. And that's where we're at in Matthew chapter 12. See, you have to understand that Jesus basically revealed to all the the Jewish leaders of his day all these miracles, all these, they've witnessed all these uh, deliverances from demons and, and they heard his preaching, they heard his teaching and they saw how people were just attracted to this guy. He just kind of came out of the blue and all of a sudden, you know, he's the center of attention overnight. But were they willing to give the spirit of God, the glory and honor that they saw in him through the, by the power. Well, we saw how this started off in Matthew 12, in verse 22. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who was brought to him, a mute, blind man, healed him, cast out the demon, and all the crowds were amazed, and they began to wonder, is this the Messiah? The Pharisees were kind of standing around the outside. They saw what the crowd was kind of interested in, and they saw these miracles, and rather than attack the, uh, the miracles themselves, they couldn't do that. The, they actually happened. So they said to the crowd, they started whispering in the crowd's ears, well, you know what? He does these miracles, but he doesn't do it by the power of God. He does it by the power of Beelzebub or by Satan. In other words, his power, it's definitely there. There's power there. It's supernatural what's happening, but we're not going to credit God. We're going to credit Satan for it. And when they said that, guess who they were blaspheming? They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They weren't blaspheming Jesus Christ. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit because it was the Holy Spirit who was ministering through him. And that becomes the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means to speak evil against the Holy Spirit. There's probably nothing more evil than you could say to the Holy Spirit than, you know what, the power that you have is not from God, it's from Satan. I mean, that's a direct assault on the holiness and purity of God. And that is what they said about the power of the Holy Spirit that they saw in Christ. That was their accusation. 
And so he answers their accusation in verse 25. And he says, first of all, your, your accusation is unfounded. In other words, it doesn't make any sense. Everybody knows that a kingdom divided against itself is not going to stand very long. So why would Satan be out there casting out Satan? That doesn't make any logical sense. It's absurd. And then secondly, he says it's not only unfounded, but it's biased. And he points out in verse 27 that their sons, their disciples, the Pharisees' disciples were out there apparently casting out demons. They tried, at least. And when the Pharisees saw them doing it, they said, oh, look at the great power of God. But when they saw Jesus doing basically on the outside the very same thing, they said, oh, he does it by the power of Satan. And so Jesus is pointing out to them, you know what? Your accusation is not only unfounded, but it's also biased against me. And thirdly, it's, it denies the truth. In verse 28, he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, because obviously your argument, your accusation is ridiculous. There's no way I would do it by Satan's power. Satan wouldn't be casting out Satan. So I must be doing it by the power of God. And if that's true, look at what he says in verse 28. Then the kingdom of God is near and the kingdom is right here. And you're seeing the kingdom of God in operation. And if I'm doing it, I must be the king. That's what he's saying to them. And then he gives them an illustration. And he says, you know what? If you go into somebody's house and you try to rob the house, you first have to tie the people up. They're not just going to lay back and let you do whatever they, you want in their house. If you're trying to steal things from them, they're going to fight against you. Anybody would. They're going to put up resistance. So you have to tie up the strong man. And so Jesus points out the, very simply that, you know what? I've tied up the strong man. He says, if I can control the demons of Satan, then I must have been able to somehow bind Satan himself. And we talked about that last week. This thing about people going around binding Satan and all that, it's it's ridiculous. No one has power to bind Satan except the Lord himself. You see that in the book of Revelation. And so he says, your accusation is unfounded, it's biased, it denies the truth. And then he finally comes to the conclusion here and gives what we call a judgment or an anathema, a curse in verses 31 and 32. And a lot of people are confused by this because we've just been saying, well, God is a forgiving God and there's no sin that he can't forgive. And then all of a sudden you're faced with the fact that, well, wait a minute, there is one sin. And by Jesus' own words himself, Look at what he begins to say in verse 31 of chapter 12. He says, therefore. They always taught us in school, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, find out why it's therefore. And that always means go back. Whatever he said before this point, he's drawing a conclusion. If I said to you, you know what? It's rainy, it's snowy, it's, 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 it's cold outside, it's miserable... The weather is horrible, therefore, we're not going to the park. Okay, the reason we're not going to the park is for all the reasons I listed previously. Well, Jesus is about ready to wrap up his little argument here. And in verse 31, he says, therefore, I say to you. In other words, based upon everything you've seen, Pharisees, everything you've experienced, all the supernatural things that you've actually seen take place before your, your eyes. You can't deny them. You know they're supernatural. You just don't. Give the right person credit. He says, therefore, based on everything that's been going on, I say to you, and look at what he does. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Once again, 
Jesus Christ goes right back to that compassionate heart and he reiterates the forgiving heart of God. He wants them to understand every blasphemy, every sin, anything that could come down the pike is forgivable. It will be forgiven men. Now, he mentions two things there, sin and blasphemy. Sin is basically just sin. It's falling short of God's mark. It's missing the target. It's doing something in your behavior uh, or your heart or your thoughts that is not honoring to the Lord. Just very general statement. But then he says, and blasphemy. In other words, he's talking about blasphemy here in the text. So he says, covers everything with sin. And then he kind of focuses down like a laser beam on blasphemy. And he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Well, I thought you just said that there's an unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Spirit. Well, we're going to get to that. But he says here that sin and blasphemy are, in a sense, forgivable. What is blasphemy? What is blasphemy? Just general term, blasphemy means to speak evil against God. To speak evil against God. To say things about God that are not true about Him. Speak of God in a derogatory way. That's blasphemy. It's defiant, it's irreverence, whatever you want to call it. And Jesus begins by saying here, all kind of sin and all blasphemy is forgivable. Now, he's not saying that all sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. He's not making that promise, or nobody would go to hell because everything would be forgiven. Remember, forgiveness is based on what? It's based on repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have to meet those two requirements. You can't just say, oh, yeah, the pastor said God's going to forgive everything, so woo, just go mosey on down your, your sinful life and don't worry about it. In the end, everything's going to be fine. It's not a universalist statement. Ultimately, all sin and blasphemy will be forgiven if the condition of forgiveness is met, which is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says here that blasphemy can be forgiven. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says this, he was writing, and he says, even though I was once a blasphemer, the apostle Paul was writing, and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Here's a trustworthy statement, he says, saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, Paul says. So he says that he was the worst of all sinners, a blasphemer. He spoke evil against God himself, but he was forgiven. All manner of sin and blasphemy is forgivable. God is in the business of forgiving sin. Psalm 32, David says, I brought my sin before you, and what? You forgave me. Psalm 85 talks about the wonderful forgiveness of God. Psalm 103 talks about God forgiving our sins, and it says that he removes them as far as the east is from the west. It's immeasurable. You can't measure the east from the west. It's impossible. The prophet Micah says, Who is a pardoning God like you, who is so forgiving, and he buries our sins in the depths of the sea? And on and on and on. Even in the New Testament, 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again and again, we understand the message that God is a forgiving God. 
And he will graciously forgive any sin, even the sin of blasphemy. You say, well, would a, could a Christian blaspheme God? Sure. Sure, a Christian could blaspheme God. Why not? Have you ever shaken your angry fist at God? Why'd you do that? How dare you? That wasn't fair. Any of those statements, that's blasphemy against God. That's saying something about God's nature that's not true. And the Bible says that the Lord will forgive all of the Christian's sin. Over in Colossians, turn with me, if you will, to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 3, talks about setting our mind on Christ, not on the earth. But all sin, including blasphemy, is forgiven for the Christian by God. Look at what it says. For you died and your life is hidden in Christ, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, he's talking about salvation. You died, your, your life was hidden in Christ. You were saved, in other words. It says, therefore, so he's talking to Christians. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he lists some things. Look at what he lists. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things... The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these. In other words, don't fall into these behaviors, Christians. And look at what he lists. Anger, wrath, malice. Oh, there it is. Blasphemy. And he goes on, filthy language out of your mouth. So can a Christian commit blasphemy against God? Definitely. Is it forgivable? Definitely. Well, I thought you just said it was unforgivable. We're getting to that. Look at verse 31 back in Matthew 12. He says, All kinds of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. And then the word that we never like to hear, the word that usually comes as they're singing our praise, then they say, but, <laughs> that little three-letter word, that's what he does here. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but, hold on, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Do you know this is the only sin in the Bible where it's said it's unforgivable? Blasphemy in and of itself was a serious sin. In the Old Testament, if you look through the book of Leviticus, you'll find out if somebody blasphemed God, if somebody spoke something against God, the law said that they should be taken out and stoned, male, female, whoever. That's how serious. I mean, can you imagine how many stonings we'd be going on today if we still upheld that today? If anyone speaks a word against God, they stoned him. Very serious sin. And the sin is further defined, what he's talking about here, in verse 32. He says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Well, who is the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. 
Well, what's he saying here? You can speak against Christ? I thought that's what they were doing. See, the emphasis comes from the words, the Son of Man. What does that designate? What does that denote about Christ? It talks about his humility. It talks about his servanthood. It doesn't say the Son of God. It says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man. In other words, when you see Jesus Christ in his humility, in his incarnation, and you just look at him physically and you say, you know, I don't like that guy. He rubs me the wrong way. That's forgivable. Not a big deal. Even though you're wrong, not a big deal. So he says, you can speak a word against the Son of Man. That would be forgivable. Because maybe you're just seeing his humanness. Maybe you're just looking at him in his humility and saying, who is this guy? And maybe his power is not on display when you see him in his physicality standing before you. So you're just condemning what you perceive in his human nature. Another thought here is important. The fact that Christ is in his incarnation, his, his point of humiliation. And you know what? When he was at that point, that just kind of brought up all kinds of invitations to criticism. I mean, people always, you know, I mean, they, they, they look at Christ and they say, this is the second, this is supposed to be the second person of the Trinity? I'm not too impressed by this guy. I mean, he's just this carpenter's son from Nazareth. It wasn't a big deal. But when you speak against the Holy Spirit, that's different. Because he says there in verse 32, he says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, well, that's going to be forgiven him. Not a big deal. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, what's it say? It will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. What does this mean? Kind of back and forth. Okay, there's forgivable sin, there's not forgivable. What are we talking about here? He's basically pointing out that if you look at Jesus Christ and you see all the supernatural things that he is doing, and you're saying, wow, these things are definitely supernatural. I'm not questioning his miracles. He definitely heals people, does all these supernatural things, all these people. He's an amazing teacher, just very gifted individual, powerful, powerful man. That's what the Pharisees were saying. That's why they were so scared of him. But then to come down on the wrong side and to say something as silly as they said, well, yeah, all his miracles are true, but just one thing. He does them by the power of Satan. (laughs) See, that's a switching point. The Jews once said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, they, they, that just meant they weren't impressed with his human element. They, they, they were looking at him and saying, well, you know, that's a far cry from saying, yeah, we've seen all the supernatural power that he's put on display. We've heard his teachings. We've seen him cast out demons. And you know what? Our conclusion is that it's not from the power of heaven he does it, but it's from the power of hell itself. That was unforgivable. Because forgiveness is based on what? On repentance and faith in Christ. If they concluded that Christ was filled with the devil himself... They certainly weren't going to listen to his message about repentance 
and putting their faith in him. And so the reason they could never be forgiven is because they could never believe. Why was that? Because they had all the evidence given to them. All the evidence possible was given to them on a silver platter. And they looked at all the evidence and they said, well, nice evidence, but you know what? We believe that this is all from Satan. We believe this is all, all these miracles and everything is done by the power of Satan, not by the power of God, not by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you only knew a little bit about Jesus Christ, usually you can bring somebody along. You can tell them more and tell them more. And finally, the truth hits them square. And they think, wow, this guy was really the Messiah. It's really who he said he was. And you know what? Yeah, I better listen to when he says, you know what? I am the only way to heaven. Uh, Besides me, there is no other way. There's no mediator between God and man except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe I should listen when Jesus says, you know what? Uh, Come to me, confess your sin. I'll forgive you of your sin. So if salvation comes by faith in Christ and the confidence that he is God and that he has somehow confronted your sins from which you're going to repent and turn to him. And they wouldn't believe any of that. They couldn't be saved, either in this age or the age to come. There'll be no forgiveness. When they saw the work of the Holy Spirit, they said, that's the devil. And they saw more than enough. They just didn't see one miracle. They followed Jesus around his whole earthly ministry. And they concluded that what he did, he did by the power of Satan. And so he says, you know what? You can never be forgiven. Because you'll never get to the forgiveness condition. Which is to believe that Lord Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. So it isn't like God is up in heaven and saying, oh, you guys picked on my son. Well, therefore, I'm not going to forgive you. No, it's not something like that at all. He's basically saying, you know what? You've had so much evidence. You've had so much time to draw your conclusions. And the conclusion you drew was the opposite of the truth. And as a result of that, you're not going to come to me. So you're never going to be forgiven. God couldn't do anything more for them. He gave them everything he had. They had seen everything they could have seen, and they turned their back on God at that point. There's nothing else to do. They obviously had gone beyond the human factor of Christ. They weren't looking at Jesus anymore, just saying, oh, you're just a, a carpenter. Who is this guy? No, they were saying, man, you got power, but your power comes from the dark side. So they were hopeless. People ask, can this sin be committed today? Can you commit the unpardonable sin today? Or is it unique to this time period? I want to answer that two ways. First of all, I think it is, this specific sin is unique to this time period. Because to commit this particular sin that Jesus is talking about here, you would have to be living on earth when Christ lived on earth, physically, I mean, that's the only way it could be committed. To point to Jesus Christ, who is here physically on earth, performing miracles, and you go, you know what? You do it by the power of Satan, not God. That's the sin that he's addressing, the unpardonable sin, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. 
So I think it is unique to that era, that time period when he was here on earth. It's interesting, if you think about this, there's going to come a time when Jesus Christ will once again be here on earth, right? And once again, there's going to be people that stand up against him and fight him and say, oh no, they're going to come up for every reason not to believe the miracles that he does then. It's a little different in that when Jesus Christ returns to rule and reign on earth, he's not coming in his humiliation. He's coming in his full glorification. At that time, he's not going to have to rely on the Spirit of God to do anything. He's going to have everything within him because he's not going to set anything aside the second time he comes. He's going to come in all his power and all his glory. But even then, there's going to be some who will fight against him. So it may be a little different then, but to a certain degree, the same sin could maybe possibly be committed then. They conclude the opposite of the very truth, and therefore they're damned. What's interesting is, after this time period, after these Pharisees, these religious leaders of Judaism made these statements about God, do you know that less than 40 years after this, God basically, for the most part, wiped out the entire Jewish society in 70 A.D.? He destroyed their temple. He wiped out the city of Jerusalem. He mass- there was massacre of about 1.1 million Jews. And in the years that followed, conquerors came through and slaughtered the Jews of all 985 towns and villages in that area. And it was all over because all the evidence was in, beloved. There was nothing else God could do for these religious leaders in Jesus' day. He gave them his own son, performed miraculous things, and they came down on the side and said, you know what, he doesn't do it by the power of God, he does it by the power of Satan. So they turned their back totally on God. And it played out throughout history. There's always a remnant that believed. There's always that, and as there was then. But that's unique to that period. That kind of sin is not necessarily unique in and of itself, but the sin we're talking about here was. The reason I say that, if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 6, interesting portion of Scripture. It seems like all these hard sections of Scripture to understand theologically, they're all connected somehow. So you've got to deal with one, you 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 deal with one, you've got to deal with the other. When Hebrews chapter 6 comes the next period, you might say, in Jewish history. They had the time when Jesus was there. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected God, said that he did it by the power of Satan. Forty years later, 70 AD, everything's wiped out. Then we come to this next period, period that immediately follows the life of Christ. And we see somewhat of the same kind of sin reoccurring. Not specifically the unpardonable sin, but in nature, it, it kind of is, in a, in a way. And let me explain it to you this way. If you look in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, Hebrews begins to speak here of a lot of heavy theological things, and we're not going to even be able to get into all of it this morning. But he begins by comparing the priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he was an Old Testament king and priest in the book of Genesis. And he's making a comparison between Christ and Melchizedek rather than Christ and the errant 
Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. And so he says he's more like Melchizedek as a priest. And so he gives this comparison there, and you can read that on your own. And then in verse 11, he stops, and he gives another one of these warning passages, you might say. Now, you have to understand, first of all, that the book of Hebrews was basically written to Christian Jews. It was written to Jews who became Christians. But within the context of Hebrews, there are certain warnings to those Jews who had yet to embrace Christ. So he does warn some people here in the book of Hebrews who are not Christians about some judgment that's down the road. But for the most part, the the book is written to Christian Jews. But he does give warnings to unsaved Jews. And these warnings come because they've had all the intellectual information, all the stimulation given to them, all the proof and the evidence. They've seen it all. They've heard it all. And they believe in their minds. But they will not come to Christ. They won't make that final step. And the reason they wouldn't make that final step is because when you were a Jew in that day, and even today, but more so in that day, when you were a Jew and you forsook your Judaism and you became a disciple of Christ, what they did is basically they called it unsynagogued. They, they would kick you out of the synagogue. If you know anything about Jewish culture, everything revolves around the synagogue. It's just the social heartbeat of the whole community. And so to be kicked out of the synagogue would, would just be horrible. I mean, you know, if we kicked you out of our church, I mean, that would be bad. But I mean, it doesn't, it pales in comparison to being kicked out of a synagogue just because of the cultural inclinations that are involved in everything. And so they were afraid of being unsynagogued. So they've had all this information about Christ, just like the Pharisees did back in Matthew. In Hebrews here, it talks about all this information they were have, but they were afraid of being socially outcast. So they were holding back from truly committing to Christ. Look at what he says to them in verse 11 of Hebrews 6. Or, uh, excuse me, Hebrews um, 5, verse 11. He says, Of whom we have much to say, talking about Melchizedek, and hard to explain. In other words, he's dealing with kind of weighty matters here. And then he says this, Since you have become dull of hearing. What he's saying is, you know what? I want to say a lot more on this subject, on Melchizedek and the priesthood and all that. But you know what? You're plain. I mean... The simple translation here is you're stupid. My grandkids would say, oh, you said the S word. But that's what it means. It means you're stupid. You're slow to learn. You're sluggish. I can't say anything more to you because you're just too thick-headed. And he goes on there. He goes, by now, you ought to be teachers. Verse 12. But you need someone to come along and teach you the ABCs of the oracles of God. Instead of being able to teach them, you can't even understand those. So you have to go back and be retaught all this stuff because you're so dull of hearing. You're so thick-headed. You're so stupid. You need milk all the time. You can't take the solid stuff. Look at what he says in verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. That's why I think he's talking to 
non-Christians here. See, this is an important theological point because if you believe he's talking to Christians, you're going to get in trouble when you get into Hebrews 6. But he says you're unexperienced, you're unskilled in righteousness. In other words, you have no experience at all in righteousness. You couldn't say that of a Christian. They're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They were unexperienced in righteousness, in teaching about righteousness. And then he even calls them babes, for he is a babe. And everybody says, oh, he must mean a baby Christian. No, he doesn't mean a baby Christian. That word is, is, can mean Christian. It can mean non-Christian. It's, it's just, it doesn't matter. In 1 Corinthians 3, it's used for Christian, for Christians. And in Galatians 4, it's used for non-Christians. He's just talking about somebody who's just an infant. Just kind of slow of mind. He can't grasp things. And so there's, there's non-Christians here, Jews should ha, who have been, should have been able to teach the truth about the Messiah, but because they wouldn't listen or they wouldn't come to faith, they had to be retaught the ABCs of the Old Testament. They were ignorant, they were unskillful in the truth about righteousness. They didn't have any of the sense that was able to discern what was in front of them. According to verse 14, they couldn't even discern both good and evil. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Here's what he says. Therefore, based on what I just said, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ. In other words, I'm not going to talk about this stuff anymore. You should have already known this. I'm not going to spend my time there. He says, let us go on to perfection. Let us go on to perfection. He's saying, you know what? You should understand all these types and shadows and prophecies about the Messiah I mean, you've been exposed to them over and over again. I'm going to leave that. I'm not going to sit here and rehash all that with you. I want you to go on to perfection. What is perfection? Well, Paul uses that term when it relates to our spiritual maturity. I don't think that's what he's talking about here, obviously. Because I think we're talking about non-Christians. Perfection in Hebrews is salvation. It's not just maturing in your faith. It's actually talking about salvation itself. Look over at chapter 11, if you doubt me. Chapter, or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 11. It says, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood. Well, what's he talking about? Salvation were through Levitical priesthood. He says, well, people wouldn't get saved. Look at verse Uh, 19, he says, for the law made nothing perfect. In other words, the law can't save you. For by the deeds of the law, no man shall be justified. Then over even in verse 10, it becomes very, very clear that when he speaks of perfection, he's speaking of salvation. In verse 10, chapter 10, verse 14, he says, for by one offering, he has perfected Forever those who are being sanctified. So he's talking about salvation in the book of Hebrews. He's not talking about spiritual maturity. As Paul does in a lot of his epistles. So he's saying there in verse 1. You know what? I want to leave this Old Testament stuff behind. All these pictures of the Messiah. All the references. All that stuff. You should have this down by now. You don't. But I'm not going to talk about that anymore. I'm not going to go over that old stuff again. 
See, they believed in repentance. They believed in turning from their sins. They believed in turning from dead works. But there's even more than that. The Bible says that you have to repent, that you have to come to Christ for salvation, for perfection. And faith toward God. There's nothing wrong with faith in God. Only no man comes to God but by Jesus. And so it's, it's kind of a repeat of the same thing. These people were exposed to certain truths about the Savior, and basically they rejected them. And then in verse 2 of Hebrews 6, he says, of the doctrine of baptisms, this is the only place in the, in the Bible probably where they mistranslated that word. It should be translated washings. It's talking about their traditional washings that they did in Judaism. It's not talking about New Testament baptism. So these aren't Christians, these are Jews. So he's talking about their their washings and different things that they did when they went to have a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. They would, um, you know, wash their hands and they'd go through this whole process. And what he's saying is, you know what, you've got to get to the point where you're no longer worried about the laying hands on dead animals and all this stuff. But you better come clear to understand that you need to lay hold of Christ, the Lamb of God. And he talks about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And then in verse 4, he says this. He wants them to clearly understand. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Once enlightened. In other words, these people were being exposed to the truth about Christ, about who he was, but because of their Judaistic trappings, they wouldn't commit because they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. And so what he's saying to them, the writer of Hebrews is simply saying, you know what, you've gotten everything you're going to get. There's no more evidence that I can bring before you. Everything is laid out for you. That word impossible In verse 4, it doesn't mean difficult. It means utterly impossible. In other words, it's not going to happen. It's the same word used in verse 18 where it says that it's impossible for God to lie. So it's just as impossible for this to happen as it is for God to lie. Well, what's impossible? For those who were once enlightened. What does that mean? has to do with your mind. It means to give light to knowledge, to understand something intellectually. It's also used in 2 Peter chapter 2 of those who were given the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They had a knowledge, but the world's power pressed in on them. And like dogs, it says they returned to their own vomit because they rejected that head knowledge. Jesus in Matthew 4, when he preached, he said, "...the light has shone in the darkness." And the people were exposed to the light. Matter of fact, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He says, come to me while it is day or while it is light. So the light was there. They had been enlightened. Secondly, look at what he says. They tasted the heavenly gift. Well, what does that mean? I believe it's Christ. The unspeakable gift the Bible refers to him of. 
The salvation message, the gospel, everything is bound up in Christ. Well, how did they taste of Christ? These guys followed him around. They went everywhere with him. They watched what he did. They saw his power. They heard his message. They saw his miracles. But, unfortunately, they didn't eat his flesh and drink his blood, as it says in John 6. They just dabbled in it. It says they just tasted it. Jesus clearly said, if you want to enter into life, what do you have to do? You have to drink of this water. Remember that? He didn't say taste it. He said drink. Take, make a commitment. You had to drink it. That was total commitment. So they tasted it. They saw his character. They saw all his supernatural abilities. They saw all this stuff. Think of the spies at Kadesh Barnea when they went out into the land and they spied out the land, remember? And they saw all these good things. Oh, it's just incredible. And they turned back and they said, oh, but we can't go there. <laughs> can't do it. See, it's kind of like God is showing us here in Hebrews what happens when someone's in the process of being saved. Here's what's happened. First, there comes an enlightenment, an understanding of the message. They hear it. They intellectually process it. Then they taste of what salvation would be like because they hang around where Christ is. And then it says even further there, and this is where it gets confusing for a lot of people, it says that they became partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, this must be Christians then, right? No. No. You mean you can be a partaker of the Holy Spirit and not be a Christian? Definitely. What do you mean? What does that word partaker mean? That word partaker Metakos in the Greek means to be in association with. I challenge you to look anywhere in the Bible where it says that Christians are in association with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that at all. Never says that. It says that we are indwelt. It says that we are possessors. It says that we are filled with the Spirit. But never once will you find that it says that we are in association with the Holy Spirit. That's what this word means. So they were associated with the Spirit. In other words, they saw the giftings of the Holy Spirit. They saw the work. They saw everything that Christ did, and they said, wow, this is incredible. Further, it says that they tasted the good word of God. Well, they heard it. Rhema, they heard the word. It means speech. It means they heard a lot of speeches that Christ did. Many had listened to the preachers and the apostles and everything. They heard the word of God over and over probably because they were constantly following them around, watching the miracles happen. In Mark 6.20, it says that Herod heard John gladly. He heard it, but he never believed. Then it says that they tasted the powers of the age to come. In other words, the age to come is the kingdom it's the power that is full in Christ. And they saw glimpses of that. They tasted of it. And this is the generation right after Christ was here physically on earth. They were ministered to by the apostles. They were enlightened by their teachings. They were able to taste the heavenly gift because they 
preached salvation. They were partakers in association with the Holy Spirit. They saw all the miracles. They tasted the word of God and they saw the powers of the kingdom to come. What is he saying? I can't do anything more for you, folks. That's it. That's all I got. What do you need to believe? See, if you'd seen all this, and you still haven't embraced Christ, he says, I don't have anything else for you. It says in verse 6, if they fall away, if they're at this point, in this process, and they turn their back on God and the Holy Spirit and the whole basket. They just walk away from it. Well, you know what? There's nothing else for them. If they fall away, he says, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. It's impossible for that to happen. Then he gives an illustration in verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated receives blessings from God. And if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. The rain speaks of all those things in verses 4 and 5. The rain of God's blessing. Here's the message. Believe it. See. Come forth. With briars and thorns, you know what? You're just going to be burned up. And then in verse 9, he turns the corner and he begins to talk to Christians. Look at what he says, but beloved. (laughs) On the other hand, in other words, he's leaving the non-Christian now. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, the things accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner. So as we close this, People say, well, what is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's attributing to Satan the works of the Spirit. When they had all the revelation that there was in the presence of Christ living here on earth, they concluded that it was satanic. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. They could never be forgiven. Can it be committed at another time? Well, in nature, yeah, we just saw that. It's the next generation. And you have a similar sin here. God shows all them all this stuff. And they say, you know what? I'm not interested. Sorry. And they fall away. There's nothing left for them. If they reject Christ, that's it. See, if you've been exposed to the truth over and over and over, you've been exposed to the gospel. That's all you're going to get. God doesn't have anything else to give you. If you have enough to make a decision, like he said back in Matthew, then you know what? Either you're for me or against me. You can't sit on the fence. And if your final conclusion is, you know what? I'm against you. There's no salvation for you. What's the warning? Don't get to that point. That's why Jesus said, you had better believe while it is day because the night is coming. And the lights are going to go out. And it's going to be too late. John MacArthur, in his commentary, he gives this illustration of a World War II time. And there was an aircraft carrier in the North Atlantic. 
And it was during a very high point in the war and the carrier was engaged in a battle. And there was a kind of a stop in the battle, a lull in the battle. And there were a lot of ships in the different area around this carrier. And the American forces were in a very precarious situation. He says there there was a moment where six pilots took off in their planes and they left the carrier to see what they could search out as far as enemy submarines that could be attacked. And while they were up in the air, the enemy attacked by air, and the order was given for a total blackout. In other words, you had to turn off every light on this carrier. The carrier had to shut off every light, which left, obviously, these six pilots flying around without any ability to locate where their ship was in the darkness and the blackness of night. And the story says that they radioed in first... The first pilot, hey, give us some light and we can land. We'll make it. Even if we have to fly through all this artillery, we can make it. And the radio operator came back on the radio and he said, I can't. I'm not permitted to give you any light because it's a total blackout. The second pilot, just give us one light. Just so we can see the orientation of the ship. But the radio operator came back, I can't. And each successive pilot tried to get that operator to break his orders, but he didn't. The record says the operator could do no more. He reached over and he turned off the radio switch and he broke radio contact. And six red-blooded aviators in the prime of manhood went down in that cold North Atlantic and out into eternity. You know, there's going to come a time in all of our lives if we have not come to Christ, when God reaches over and turns the switch out. That's why the Bible says, believe why you can. Now is the accepted time of salvation. I pray that you would keep those things in mind as you hear the message of the gospel, that God forgives sin through Christ. Don't hesitate. Don't just not going to be worth it in the end. God wants you to come to him. Father, we pray this morning that as we see this unpardonable sin kind of played out in a couple different ways in Scripture, Lord, I thank you today that the word of Scripture is very clear to us that today that we can come to you because your word says that you have grace extended to us And that grace calls us. That grace gives us the light we need to understand the truth. And even if there's the slightest little flicker of hope, we thank you, Lord, that you fan that flame in our hearts. That you never give up where there's any hope. Lord, we pray that there would be no one here this morning that would fall away, that would get to the point where the lights go out forever. Father, I pray that you would minister in their heart, that you would draw them to you as only you can. Show them their need of a Savior. Have them embrace you. Have them commit their lives to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.